You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Because I like to feel like a tiny benevolent god. I'm Zoraida Cordova. I'm Cass Morris. I'm Marshall Ryan Moresca, and this is episode 32. There's no place like home. everyone. I am so, so excited that we have such a wonderful guest this week, the amazing Zoraida Cordova, who does so many fantastic things that I could not possibly adequately introduce her. So I'm going to force her to introduce herself and tell us about all the wonderful things she's got going on right now. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. My name is Zoraida Cordova. I'm the author of the Brooklyn Bruja series which the third book, the third and final book in the series comes out September 1st. Uh, it's called Wayward Witch. Uh, I'm also the author of Incendiary, which is a high fantasy. I've written for Star Wars. My book is called A Crash of Fate. Ga- well, technically, Star Wars, Galaxy's Edge, A Crash of Fate. I, you have to give the whole title. <laughs> um, I also write Middle Grade. Uh, my l- latest book, my first book, actually, in Middle Grade is a a fairy tale adventure called The Way to Rio Luna. Um, In my free time, I put together anthologies with my best friend, Natalie C. Parker, who's also a writer. Uh, And in my extra free time, (laughs) I work on a podcast called Deadline City, which is geared towards uh, writers trying to figure out how to keep writing. Listeners, if you could have seen Cass Morris's face when the phrase, <laughs> I wrote a Star Wars book, was... <laughs> I fangirl all the Star Wars writers, and I loved A Clash of Fate. That It was fantastic. I loved it. Loved Thank it. you so much. <laughs> well, that is an incredible amount of, of work and fun and other things, and I question how you define free time. But I also understand how you define free time because when Marshall and Rowena said, hey, do you want to do this podcast with us? I said, absolutely. So (laughs) I think a lot of us just, you know, like doing stuff and keep doing it. Yes, we like to keep busy. And I appreciate other people who like to keep busy and like to talk about nerdy writer stuff as well. Well, that is certainly what we do here. You're in the right place. (laughs) This is this is where we talk about the nerdy writer stuff like crazy absolutely do we have any other announcements or anything before we start talking nerdy writer stuff i i have nothing right now i am in a hell of my own making which is called proofreading and that's all i've got going on right now yeah but you have a book coming out in october which isn't that far away from when this will be released so november november oh yours is november okay yeah mine's october yours is yours is october so That's amazing. Nothing like putting books out during a pandemic to make you realize how much work you actually do. (laughs) Yeah. And I remember thinking like back in March and feeling so sad for all the people whose books were coming out in March and April and thinking, oh, well, maybe it'll all be over by autumn. No. (laughs) Oh, God. No, I decided that mine's (laughs) going to come out a week after the election. So that'll be its own. Oh, (laughs) Yeah, I feel like everybody panicked and was like, no, uh, like, you know, removing everything from from the election election time. And and it's just now 
there are more books coming out right before and right after. I had a book come out on Election Day 2016, and Mm -hmm. that was a thing. (laughs) And had a podcast scheduled to record the very next day. And I remember that the host of that podcast wrote me, he's like, we're not recording today. We're going to take a little time. I was like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like we're just going to go drink. (laughs) I got all my interns drunk that day. It was great. So (laughs) I considered that my mentorship responsibility that day. It was good. They were was, all of age, of age interns. It was good work you did there. <laughs> yep. Anyway, um, our topic today is uh, the home and domestic spaces, which I think is an interesting thing to look at in fantasy fiction because the first thing we can sort of ask ourselves is what is the function of home in fantasy, which is so often about journeys and travel and adventure and going to strange new places and having that whole epic saga what role does home play in that kind of story? Yeah. Yeah, very often in fantasy novels, you have characters who essentially don't have a home base, as it were, because, or if they do, it's more the sort of like, someday we'll get to go back home. But first, we're stuck, or (laughs) home base is something that moves. Like they might have a wagon or a ship or something like that so that, they have something resembling stability, but at the same time, they get to go places. But it's, you know, because you're right, it is usually about journey and traveling. And so there is home is, you know, where you can finally go to once it's done. But but the work is never done. Yeah, I think that uh, so my 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 latest fantasy novel, Incendiary, it is, I think, about how I'm constantly it feels like just shifting pieces back and forth because they it's a group of people who it's inspired by 15th century spain uh but but it's a magical magical kingdom um and there's a group of people with magic but they their empire has fallen and had like fell years ago so there's just the concept of home is this like ephemeral uh thing that they can't really hold on to and so my main character is always asking what is what is home where where do we belong? Uh, how do we figure that out? And I think that like a lot of the fantasy, the big epic fantasy journeys tend to tend to lay lay um, lay that on really hard. It often feels like home is either it's it's been destroyed, it's been lost, and so I've had to go out into the world, or home is in jeopardy, and so I have to go out to protect it, to defend it from whatever is threatening it, or home is so dull and boring that I have to escape from it somehow. Like. <laughs> That sort of feels like that's where a lot of characters start from, but as we often, you know, say, that doesn't that doesn't have to be the choices that writers make. And even across the journey, the characters may then end up in other people's homes. And so we can also right. examine, you know, not just what does our point of view character consider home, but what other homes are they going to encounter, even if they are journeying. I think also there's the idea that home is the promised reward after victory. That you... mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Uh, in Thor Ragnarok, the the entire part, the like the entire theme of that movie is is uh, Asgard is a people and it's not a place. Mm-hmm. So the, it's fine if we have uh, Ragnarok and the entire the entire land just gets completely obliterated because as long as this this group of people survive, then they're fine. They're still a group of people, but technically they're still homeless. And now they're refugees in space. 
Um, so it does. I think it's interesting how everybody sort of approaches this idea uh, in so many different ways. Well, that brings us to the question of what is home? How do we or the, how do our characters define home? Is it about space? Is it about a culture? Is it about a people? I, I know one of the things I always tend to do, and since since so much of what I do is a little more rooted in comic book lore rather than mm-hmm. rather than traditional fantasy is I tend to always have a sort of like home base or headquarters or something like that or make sure that the home or family life is something that's still tied into things so even if it's like a found family situation I usually have some space that is considered safe and where the characters can can be or in the in the case of the constabulary books there is you know the actual house where the huge extended family all lives and Mm -hmm. so that that's the sort of thing that i'm doing that's usually very different from that but it is i think it is that sort of that physical space that can be considered a safe place to for your main characters to rest and recuperate and have people around them that they trust is the core thing yeah I think that so again I'm I'm just gonna go back to Incendiary because it's it's the last book that I have. Um, in Incendiary, they my main character leaves has no home, so she has nowhere to go uh, because she has rebelled. Like she has, she is part of a rebel group, but um, when her commander gets taken, she disagrees with. Uh, what to do next and so she sort of goes AWOL goes all on her own to go rescue him um, and so she returns to a place that was once her home again it was only she only lived there for two years so she lived in this palace for two years um, and now she has to return to this place which is not just a physical space but it's also a mental space because she lived there as a little girl where she was used as a weapon Um, and now she's returning as an adult. So it's this idea of, can you ever, can you go home again? Right. That's, I feel like that's the question that the hero's journey asks on its, on itself. Right. It's like, uh, are you the same after you've gone and been changed and, and been enlightened and like use the force and all this, whatever. Um, and so for my character, Ren, she returns to this place and it's like, uh, the, her worst memories, um, but it's still it's still a physical place because she does not have uh, she doesn't have anything else and her her entire home is supposedly this person but now he's gone so what is she gonna do except like become a vengeance monster I'm not not like a literal monster but like a vengeance machine so I this this book specifically just like it it goes into that so much uh, and I spent a lot of time thinking about it <laughs> I think it's one of the, the... I don't know, a, a trope you encounter a lot in fantasy is that idea of can you go home again? And I think about, you know, sort of one of the classic ones is Lord of the Rings, and you see characters mm-hmm. who can, and you see characters who can't. It it, it goes both ways, and, and it's not necessarily... Coming home isn't always the victory or the reward that it's set up to be. And Marshall, what you were saying about it sort of being a home base, you know, like when you're playing tag, nothing bad can happen to me here if I'm at home. But lots of stories then, you know, the, the traumatic thing is to violate that boundary and to be attacked in home and to have home no longer be the safe space, I think is a, it can be a really powerful emotional moment. Right. So it's like you're, 
the the beginning of the journey is to be ejected from this place of safety uh and that you know luke skywalker way <laughs> my entire my like you know my aunt and uncle are dead what do i do i'm gonna get on to this spaceship which is gonna be my new temporary home um and and for for years luke has no home except for the rebel alliance for the the duration of those three movies he's just living on rebel bases uh so home becomes this an ideal uh instead of a physical place and it's re- it's sort of funny that you know the first thing he jumps onto is the millennium falcon which i think to a lot of viewers ends <laughs> up feeling like home because that location that single location probably is in more of the movies than any other and so to the viewer like like that's that's our home base but it is itself transient and it passes ownership off screen and and all kinds of interesting things happen to yeah and and when han returns to the ship after he loses it he the first thing he says is chewie we're home so it's you know it resonates so much I remember the noise that the audience in the theater made, you know, oh, at that yes. line. It was like, it, Tears. We all felt it with him. It's home. And this is not now a Star Wars podcast, I swear. But um, <laughs> It is. But We're here. There, there, is, there is that emotional resonance, I think, with any space that either the character or the reader viewer starts to identify as the home base. Um, mm-hmm. And that makes it a powerful locus for storytelling whether or not your story actually happens there that idea of home is an important one so that's why i think it's good for us as writers to think about you know what does home look like what does home mean to different characters and does it always have to be the sort of modern nuclear family idea of a single location with you know walls that you can lock and and things like that which you know is is one idea when you say the word home there's like the idea in in um hogfather in in the discworld that all children will draw the same you know house if you say draw a house draw a home even though many people don't live in anything that resembles that we live in apartments we live in uh townhouses we live in all kinds of different things and people throughout history have lived in all kinds of different things and I'm twirling. (laughs) But I think you're right in that we, as a culture, have this very sort of specific idea of what home means, even if it's not necessarily something we specifically have experienced. There's still that cultural ideal. And I think, even if it might be a messed up ideal, but I think that in any work where you're trying to express a place of safety of of trust that can be considered home there is that sort of it usually is given some sense of i'm going to just say hominess even though that's you know (laughs) a (laughs) self-reflective thing to say but like one of the things that comes to mind is in the the belgaria where the main character grows up on this farm and then later when he just like visits that farm again or visits some other farm on the other side of the world he's like wow this is like just the same as home and it's kind of it's kind of comfortable and kind of cozy but we can't go back to it because it's not it's not what we live anymore but it is it does have that sense of like simple nothing bad is going to happen here because it's safe and that's i think that's 
what you try to project one way or another, even if it's not necessarily true. Because, like, the Millennium Falcon is not safe. But <laughs> but at the same time, <laughs> it is not. But at the same time, like, in that moment beforehand in The Force Awakens where they're running and they're like, well, we'll take the Junker. And it pans over and you see it's the Millennium Falcon. Again, that was another big audience reacting moment because you know they're going to be okay on that ship. Because we know. Even though they don't know, we know that. Mm-hmm. Because that's, the, that's what we've already established in terms of, like, this ship this ship is home even if they don't know that yet right that's such a great moment of dramatic irony i love it so much i wonder how much of the idea of home then is almost an idea of predictability mm-hmm. this is a place where i can expect to go to sleep this is a place where i can expect to find a meal this is the place where i can expect to be able to use the bathroom when i need to um the the basic functions of life as encapsulated in space that are not going to be disrupted. You know, it's not like going to a hotel, you know, you're not going to be there forever. But home is a place where your stuff is and where you have routines and and things there are predictable and expected. You can fall into the comfort of those routines. Mm -hmm. Put that on some needlepoint. (laughs) (laughs) Within those contexts, though, like when you're building, when you're building cultures within your world, like if... What does home mean to people who don't necessarily, like, if you're a nomadic culture or if you're, if you're not necessarily building these sort of same permanent settlements or what does a permanent settlement look like within the culture, then what does home look like? And how can you, how can you create that same sense of safety with, say, a culture or a set of characters who are always moving? Right. So I recently, well, recently, two years ago, not, maybe two years ago, I've lost track of time completely. It has no meaning anymore. Um, I think it was last year. I went on a hiking trip in Scotland, and I, um, I was going to hike the Outer Hebrides, um, and I did not finish the trail. I, like, skipped a bunch of parts because it was just so rainy. In but Scotland? for a large... Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I I was supposed to be there. I was there in June. So it was like this. I had, I had like two weeks where it was going to be perfect. And then, nope, I, I was like a day behind the good weather. Oh. And it was infuriating. So it's fine. I'll, I, I'm going to go back and do it just out of spite. But <laughs> I had the, I wanted to feel, I, I will never give my characters like heavy backpacks. I will never give them. <laughs> like too much water to carry because it you know like carrying over 20 pounds your bot like on your back is physically exhausting and painful but um I thought about how uh for those two weeks my the things that were my home and that were my comfort after like hiking 15 miles a day was my tent uh my my uh lightweight camping sandals um and the ramen and tuna that i was going to eat at the camp at the campsite that night um so these things became my sort of touchstones to an idea of home because i was being a vagrant just wandering around the scottish countryside um and so i this is like a theme that i think about all the time because as a fantasy writer we're like let's go on this journey we're gonna walk 
No, we're not going to walk. <laughs> it hurts. Everything hurts all the time. Uh, you know, blisters for days. Um, it's just... And, like, and, that, and just the terror of being alone. Uh, I chose to do this. Nobody made me do this. But, <laughs> um, it's, you know, you're, like, you're by yourself. So it, it, everything in the dark is just more frightening. So like when you're talking about nomads, like when we create these nomadic cultures, what is the relationship to creatures that sort of coexist in their nature or have their, their natural home? Um, and what is their relationship to sleeping if they if they don't sleep in like caravans and tents like if they sleep like what's called cowboy camping um or just like laying out on the grass like with nothing no shelter above you uh what is their relationship to like celestial sightings and things mm -hmm. uh so all of that just works so beautifully into to figuring out who your who these people populating your world are it almost feels like you know part of it might be a space but part of it might be the ritual of what you do and when you do it and if you don't have a if you don't have a home base to return to is the idea of home the idea of being able to take off your shoes and have your ramen at the end of the night you know <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah yeah so when a home is a more permanent space what how do we physically define that space and how can that how can you build your cultures around the way you define those spaces like what spaces are important within the home what are what are the spaces explicitly designated for or are they not explicitly designated but rather everything is just sort of use it for what you need to use it for any given situation how do you use that as the best way to define your cultures like yeah i mean for for me it's in Sunday area, I was like, okay, a castle is a castle, right? It's a palace. There's rich people there. Um, in the Brooklyn Bruja series, which is part, it's it's a portal fantasy set in Brooklyn with uh, Bruja is a Spanish word for witch. Uh, and so it's three sisters, like Latinx charmed, right? Uh, and so I needed to create a house that was uh, intended for a family of witches and so immediately what does that look like um it you know my witches cu culturally uh come from latin america and so everything's gonna look a little bit differently like the the colors of their candles the things that they put on their altars um the way the colors that they paint their walls the 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 that plastic that we put on the furniture, uh, the um, the roosters that you put on the windowsill, the 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 space that you use for rituals, the stains that might be on the floor from said rituals with like blood or knives and things like that. Uh, so that I feel like depending you have depending on the analog to your culture, um, every culture has to include all of those things. Uh, and so for me, it was really important in Labyrinth Lost to, to show that because this is where not just the witches live, this is also where, um, one of like the mother, she's a healer. So like she has, she's going to have her own little clinic, uh, in, within the house. So you're going to have outsiders coming in all the time into your, your sort of sacred space, um, which is what your home is supposed to be. And you have multi-generations and family all in there all the time 
having parties and festivals and rituals and ceremonies. Um, and so it becomes a communal space as, as well as a sanctuary space. Um, and that, that was a lot to juggle, but that's just what needed to be there for the story to make sense and for the characters to make sense, if that, if that makes sense. It does. I think it speaks to something really important when we're building a fantasy culture or adapting, you know, a real world culture for a fantasy purpose is the idea of public and private and who is allowed in your domestic space. Is it just nuclear family? Is it extended family? Is it more of the extended community? And what are the permissions? You know, who, who gets to go where? Does anyone get to go to any part of the house or is, you know, just like the downstairs, the public area? I, um, my, my mother watches a lot of HDTV and when I'm around her, <laughs> so do my uncle. So do I, because I usually don't care what's on. I'm doing four other things at once. But I was thinking about how two, two things sort of like one of the biggest things people tend to want in a house is a really nice master bedroom, a really nice, large, well, you know, well furnished private space for usually whoever owns the house, the, the couple or the person who is owning the house. And then the other thing is, is what's very big these days is the open concept downstairs is no real definition between your living area and your cooking area and your dining area. And so it speaks to a sort of interesting dichotomy between what they want in a private versus public space. Whereas in my books, I'm thinking a lot about ancient Rome and the Romans had probably what we'd also call open concept public spaces in, in the large domus because they had their triclinians and their atriums and those were very public. But the bedrooms were nothing to be impressed by. Um, there were tiny little cubicles. There was a bed in there. You really didn't spend any time in your bedroom except to sleep in. It was not a place for leisure. It was not a place to hang out and be comfortable. You did that either in the open spaces of your house or completely outdoors. Romans lived very much public lives out in the streets and out with other people. And so I think that can be an interesting way to communicate to a reader those concepts of public and private. How important is privacy to your characters in different aspects of their lives? What do they expect in terms of privacy in their home space? Yeah, and another thing, when you were talking about altars, that, that made me think about in your cultures, what, what does faith mean and what does that personal application of faith, how does that look like? Are you, do you have things in your home that represent what your faith looks like. Do you have a personal space to do that? Or is that part of the public space in the house? Or is that a thing that you only do, you know, at home, you know, in a designated space that's outside of your house? And that's, I think, an interesting thing in terms of how you're expressing the faith within your culture. Because if it is a thing that is more personal and geared towards your home, that you just, you have your altars where you, you know, light your candles and say your prayers right there in the house. Or is that a, is that something else that you go elsewhere for and how you express that in what's important in the house? I think so much of what we are talking about is what do you have within the house that demonstrates what's important to the culture? Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, that I think is a big thing there. Do we, do you have this sort of designated space within the home of this is, this is where we show our, our piety. This is where we, sh this is where we all sit together and be comfortable and, do you have large sleeping chambers that are well appointed because that's something that you do, you know, that's important. Do you have a separate room just for dressing because 
your clothes are very important in, in terms of oh. in terms of what you think about. If only. <laughs> <laughs> I have a friend who was looking at houses just the other day, and she was like, "This has a walk-in closet that's eight feet by eleven feet with a window." I'm like, "How is that not just?" A room. <laughs> bigger than every dorm room I had in college, certainly. It's possibly bigger than my last... No, not quite bigger than my last apartment, but close. Not like, that ceases to be the closet and now becomes the dressing room. Which, have a dressing room. I'm all for it. But but that's what that is now. Those those very specific... Function-specific rooms and what you have in your, in your home that are function-specific, I think, says a lot about the culture and what they value. Well, like dining room, you know, formal dining rooms are yeah. very much becoming more and more a thing of the past, but more and more people require home offices these days. And so, yeah, that specificity mm -hmm. of what is a space for can shift over time and as cultural needs and expectations change. Look, we're, we're not going to sit down and eat. I'm just going to have a bowl of something over the sink, but I need a space <laughs> to work. <laughs> Well, and then, like, just if there is a kitchen in and of itself, like, that alone says a lot about the culture that you're building. And For so much of history, many, many people did not have kitchens in their houses, or at least in their specific space. It might be one shared kitchen between a bunch of apartments, um, or like in a boarding house, or you took your bread to the baker down the street and had him bake it, and... That was it, which in a lot of ways was safer when buildings were so flammable. Let's have fewer buildings with ongoing fires in them all the time. <laughs> mm -hmm. But then, like, the idea of just, like, where is your food even coming from and who is preparing it becomes a huge thing about, about what the home even looks like. In, in my book, Wayward Witch, I think I spent, uh, actually, the entire trilogy, I spent so much time in the kitchen because, because, you know, Latin witches, uh, Latin culture, every time you have a party, everyone just sort of gathers in the kitchen, even though you spent the entire day arranging the living room and making, making sure, like, the living room is clean. Everybody just <laughs> wants to be in the kitchen because that's where it's warm. That's where the food smells good. That's where the food is coming out. So, like, you get first dibs. Um, and so I, I think that, like, I, I unintentionally put that, you know, somebody commented said like oh you're everyone's always in the kitchen in your books and I'm like yeah you're right and I think that because these books are so close to me I did that unintentionally but when it came to incendiary which is not my culture um and it's also a fake culture um I I had to think more about the placement of things and who is in the kitchen specifically because it's a uh a like either having a palace kitchen or a portable kitchen when depending on where my character is and who she's traveling with. Um, and so that, it, I, I pay very close attention to the access, accessibility of food. What kind of, what kind of, um, sort of like what kind of game are you allowed to have in that space, right? Because sometimes some people, some people won't eat certain kinds of, of some kinds of certain kinds of meat. So like how are, how do you how do you keep certain things clean um what do you value in such a space um are women allowed to be in this in the space with men at the same time like how are kitchens gendered in some countries um or in some cultures 
uh, that's also something that um, I like to think about. Or home spaces in general, are they are they gendered or are they somehow broken up mm-hmm. into who gets to be where? Like that can that can be a gender issue, that can be a class issue, that can be a caste issue, that can that can be so many different things. Mm-hmm. And as with so many things we talk about on this podcast, economics plays its role as well. Oh yes. In <laughs> you know what kind of a house you have, mm-hmm. how big the house is, whether or not you have those the kitchen spaces or do you have a toilet? <laughs> yeah, things like that. Once again, I can go back to my Romans, and it's it's one of the things I don't tend to include in the books just because, I, you know, there's just some things I take the writer's privilege and I find it icky. But Roman people pooped <laughs> together. <laughs> a lot of them did not have latrines yeah. in, in those apartment buildings. They didn't have latrines. They went to a common building, and it was just a big open room <laughs> with a bunch of benches, and all the dudes would just hike up the toga, and there you were. And they'd chat. They'd have social time while this was going on which is bewildering to me and but if it's but a it, cultural it was norm. totally normal to them yeah, yeah it was totally normal to them but a mark of wealth and status was of course having <laughs> a bathing room a a ocean of bodily fluids room in your own house if you were wealthy enough to have that you had quite a bit of wealth yeah uh one of the biggest differences in in fantasy novels that i i've seen is that i've seen more people just uh just add uh private like privies in in most houses and i'm like well if they're all really poor then i don't know how everybody can afford all of this but (laughs) sure like let's go with it i i think that um specifically in YA fantasy nobody wants to talk about the bathroom But I, you know, I have a teenage girl who's been on an adventure uh, quest for a month. At some point, she's going to need to use the the bathroom for her menstrual cycle. So, like, that also becomes something that is taken into consideration. Uh, and I don't like to, I don't like to skip over it in, in these worlds at all because I think it's really important to destigmatize that. I love that you included that bit in Wayward Witch. I thought that was just a, a, a detail that I think, especially a lot of, you know, teenage readers who have to deal with that issue will appreciate too, because it's like, if, if you're a person with a uterus that bleeds, you have probably at some point had a problem where you've been out in the world and it's like, oh no, this oh, is happening. Yeah. <laughs> what do i do (laughs) so yeah that concept of privacy is a big one that affects all of us all the time that's true and i was also thinking what you were saying about how economics can affect i was thinking how it can affect the architecture itself i remember we talked about this on you know a year ago or so how because it always comes back to taxes is how many places their architecture is defined by tax rules like i think it's in I think it's in Denmark, I could be wrong, where your how much your property is taxed is based on how wide the house is. So therefore you'd have houses that are extremely narrow, but extremely tall. <laughs> or I think it's in <laughs> Venice where it's defined by how many floors you have, 
which is why there's all these weird terms for things that are not actually floors, like mezzanine and such. It's like, oh, no, no, that's that's not a floor. That's a mezzanine. That's, that's what that is. So you can't tax us for that. And th- they'd have, like, several different I mean, concepts like that. But, like, a lot of things are about, we built it this way so we'd have to pay less taxes. And I think I think that can be a really fun thing to play with in terms of how you have your space look. When you said that, it reminded me of New Orleans and how in New Orleans, uh, the, the, you got taxed by the, the posts on the, the balconies. Hmm. Um, and so the more posts you had, the wealthier you, you were. And so that really terrible woman uh, with that big haunted house. Do you know what I'm talking about? I do not. Uh, the mallet, the uh, haunted house. I'm gonna look at this up. Haunted house, New Orleans. Lallery. I think it's Lallery. But so basically, more posts were a flex. Is is what it was? It's like, <laughs> look at how many posts I can afford to have on my balcony. Yeah, and so she would have, she would have these, uh, these, uh, the Lallery Mansion, right? It's like this big haunted house where she like, uh the Delphi, Delphine Lallery was her name. Um, and so she wanted to show her wealth. And so it changed the architecture of her house. by being like, look at all the taxes that I pay uh, because I'm so wealthy. Right. And so, and then, and you go to other places uh, in New Orleans again, and you don't see as many. So it, it changes the, the literal architecture of the, of the, the main streets. Well, I think that brings up a good point especially as we're talking about, you know, public-private, how much of a house is for you personally and how much of it is for showing off or for entertaining is the idea of, like, how much in your house is a flex, how much of it is showing off, how much of it (laughs) is for those purposes of communicating your wealth or your social status. Um, Something, a concept I love, because it's so weird, is the idea of um, the privy chamber, as as we think about it in... um, early modern towards 17th, 18th century Europe, I think. Um, I know about it mostly from the Elizabethans, but the concept continues and gets more and more Baroque and intricate as you go on. The, who had access to the monarch was defined by who had access to which room. So if you were a groom of the privy chamber or maid of the privy chamber, you had access to the private spaces, the domestic spaces. But a groom or maid of the bedchamber, oh, that got you one degree closer. That got you one one door further into the house. Um, of the wardrobe sort of got you even further. Like, there were all these layers, and it was so tied to the architecture of the domestic space. How important you were was defined by literally how close you could get to the monarch's inner sanctum, where they were at their most private and vulnerable, which I think is just sort of a fascinating way to tie together the idea of a domestic space and social structure and status just it's weird and i love it but that's why like when you hear about people having titles like groom of the privy chamber like what does that mean well it literally meant he could go through that door (laughs) when other people couldn't i'm pretty impressed with us that we've managed not to talk about how we're all homebound during this world-spanning pandemic Uh, oh no into the episode But I do think you know, yeah. it's, it's relevant right now, and it does tie into a lot of these issues of economics, um, especially I know it's something a lot of teachers are grappling with and a lot of parents of children are grappling with is, do you have the space 
for a workroom or to teach in or to be learning in, as opposed to is everyone stuck here sharing the same space and trying to carve up scraps of the floor <laughs> and figure out where they can all be yeah. at any point in time. Yeah. Um, I know, I mean, as a, like, I, I write full time. And so I usually have us an office that I travel to in New York. Uh, but because I, you know, A, I'm not going to get in the subway because I'm not an essential worker and I can get, I can work from home. I had to recreate a, um, a, like a little corner of my of my of my my one bedroom apartment in New York because I don't like doing my work in my bedroom because that to me is supposed to be like my sacred alone time space like I don't I just need to get restful sleep because I have a hard time sleeping to begin with um and so all of a sudden everything changed in the last six months has just been um kind of up and down trying to figure out how to how to work from the same place where I just want to lay down on the couch and watch television. Uh, but then I just keep thinking about people who have to, who like don't have that luxury to say like, I can just work from home. Um, and so that's, that's been really, that's been really intense to think about. But also that, that does make me think in terms of when, you know, usually when we're talking about fantasy, as we said before, we're talking about home as a place you venture forth from and it's not a thing we tend to do too much in fantasy narratives of home is a place that you're stuck or can't get leave for one reason or another. It, Cause that. Can you think of any? I really. I feel like that's where it starts drifting more into horror, you know, yeah. like you get the haunted house. Right. You're and, stuck and in the, a house. Yeah. Like maybe more. In, right. There might be more even in science fiction. You know, if you think about like generation ships and, and places you quite literally cannot leave mm. but i think it's less of a thing in fantasy fiction or sh or regular boats in fantasy fiction oh yeah that is a, that's right. a really good point yeah and the sequel in my to incendiary i have them living on a it's like a it's a ship it's like a preservation of a culture ship um and so that was really cool to sort of explore because it's like what okay so what are the hierarchies on this ship uh, what do you value on the ship other than like clean water and food? Um, <laughs> how how well does everybody know each other because you're sleeping on top of each other in hammocks and stuff? Um, that was that was a lot of fun and also difficult to to, to think about it just space wise. Well, I think it really puts character traits into a crucible and like who is compatible with each other and who isn't because there's no getting away from them yeah. <laughs> you can only walk so many physical yards away from the other person as perhaps some of us but in our in... own homes have been discovering the last six months <laughs> right yeah. i mean in young adult fiction in young adult fiction the exploration of sort of like when you have siblings how do you how do you develop those sibling relationships when you're all living together and uh have different relationships to your gods and to your um your magical culture um that's something that in the Brooklyn Bruja series I thought about a lot specifically with uh one sister might believe in certain things more so she keeps her altar more clean than her other sisters 
uh, and she'll like leave out certain kinds of food for um, for the, like the creatures that she likes to play. Like she's trying to attract uh, fairies uh, that live in in New York, uh, and so she'll she'll leave these things out, and then her other sisters will like put it away because it's like oh that's garbage. You're gonna bring in actual ants. <laughs> so. <laughs> Uh, that also is a fun thing thing to 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 play around with. So that just made me think in terms of like what about like plants and animals and how do people incorporate that into your home? Like do you have do you have a bunch of cats? Do you have do you have dogs? Do you have chickens or goats? It's a, it's a shame Rowena is missing that because she could talk about the chickens and oh. <laughs> <laughs> and she wants to get goats now, but. Like, how much of that is integrated into the home itself in terms of, like, how you're navigating through the house and the, how they interact with the house or whatever, whatever other animals or plants or if you incorporate magical creatures into that, how does that integrate into what the home life looks like? Like, do you, do you count on the tiny borrowers to come and clean up the floor because that's what they're good for. That's why you have, <laughs> that's why you, that's why you don't fumigate for the borrowers because they're going to keep things neat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh man. I love that movie so much. Um, or, you know, that's why you don't, you don't have a cat so that your, your mice who help you make your dress for the ball, you know, <laughs> Are protected <laughs> that's that can be a lot of fun of how do you integrate that into the normal of what the home is in terms of and then that leans into then what does magic mean and how does magic integrate it into the home if magic is a thing that exists in your world is it normal yeah. for a little brownie or you know the dome of Oi or another sprite to pop up or is that an unusual occurrence does that surprise your character? Or is your character just like, hey, what's up? Kitchen's all yours now. Um, I don't know if you've read the book Strange Grace by Tessa Grattan, but I think about the way that she built uh, the, there's, there's going to be a ritual where they sacrifice uh, a boy of town uh, who lives in town to, the, to the, the devil in the forest. And so the sacrifice that happens every slaughter moon is the thing that, it's a thing that like makes the village strange grace super like nobody gets sick nobody dies nobody like the horses never get sick like nothing withers nobody dies prematurely like everyone lives old because they sacrifice as one boy and so <laughs> while they're giving the preparations for this 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 sacrifice all of these women gather in in the house of the witch who performs the ceremony uh and gets the gets the boy ready and so and so it becomes like it's not physical magic like you think about with like with with witches but it it's more of a symbolic kind of magic where everything everything from the dress that she picks on to the way that she weaves her they weave her hair uh to the flowers and the food everything becomes a sort of magical piece like a set piece that is all really important to this ceremony. Um, and it's really, that's really beautiful. And I think really well thought out in the way that you can use magic without, um, 
without it being, you know, wand, sorcery wand magic. It's um, it's a like more of a symbolic type of thing. I like that a lot. And it just sort of made me think about, you know, magical spaces and non-magical spaces as relating mm-hmm. to the home. You know, when we think about the witch's house, just saying those words conjures up something a little bit different than your average run-of-the-mill suburban cookie-cutter house. You're, you're, I think, almost immediately picturing something different mm-hmm. and, and what sets that apart. Right. How does your character know when they've come upon a magical space as opposed to a normal everyday space yeah and what are those little bits of either magic or everyday iconography that that populates the house that is tied to the culture do you hang something over the door have you buried a jar of coins in the yard have you you are these just things that you do to solidify the home as a home and protect it in some sort of way that's either concretely magical based on the rules of your world or based on superstition or is it based on superstition but the superstition is based on something real within the magic of your world or something like that what those are a lot of fun little details you can play with in the world building mm-hmm. yeah do you have to put iron on the windows or right <laughs> or do you do you need to i don't know salt the door or hang something you know hang garlic at the door <laughs> <laughs> very specific problem solving there (laughs) but then like the inverse is also true what do you do to invite nice spirits in if you want to and when i was thinking about this i started thinking about you know some of the more traditional folklore but then i also thought wait isn't that what we do when we leave out cookies and milk for santa we're we're doing something in our domestic space to specifically invite this good spirit in (laughs) and we've built a whole tradition and and a thing that people do around it which is just charming humans are so charming we come up with so many well that again wonderful things that's a whole ritual based on you know that a spirit's going to come in going to come in through an untraditional way that people normally can't Mm -hmm. come in and you're specifically leaving like a thing for him to be able to easily to want to come and then and you decorate accordingly so to make it fit for for his needs. It's there's there's a lot of there's a lot of little details in there that that you can you can play with that sort of thing. I use that phrase so much now that I think about it. <laughs> because that's what we're doing. We're playing we're playing with we're taking real world things and we play with it to make it into into fun interesting world building, hopefully. For sure. Ooh, but also do you have elements of especially like ritualized elements that are specific to a time or a holiday or an event or something like that, because you're not gonna, you know, most people are not going to leave their Christmas decorations or their Halloween decorations or their Dia de los Muertos altar, you know, up year round. It's specifically for those, those holidays or those times. So are those, are those things you do in your home that are tied to specific events or specific rituals or specific times? How does the home change throughout the year? Yeah. Does its purpose change? Does its, you know, are you inside it more during the cold winter months or, or things like that? Those might also have an effect on your character and how they're going about their lives. Do, do rituals and holidays change how you exist within your home? I'm thinking about the one time, like, my parents threw a big house party when I was a kid, and I had to, like, 
polished things in the house that I'd never noticed existed before, like the, the rungs on like the banisters and things like that. And I was like, what? No one's going to look at this. Why am I cleaning this? But it was important that everything in the house be a very certain way, but only for this one holiday party they were throwing. And then it could go back to being its usual chaos. Oh, that reminds me. Think about the way that you enter a home. I think that in specifically in some cultures, you know, you know, you take off your shoes and you put them into the side. You don't ever bring that in. You don't sit down on somebody's bed without, or, you know, couch without having permission. Um, I, that's something that is like such a small detail, but, uh, I think it adds a lot of nuance and culture. Southern people do not use front doors. If your domestic space has a front and a back door, your usual door is the back door that you come in and out of. And that's like every, every place I've ever lived, that's been the case. And I know for most of my friends who have grown up in you know, sort of the same culture, that's the case for them as well. The front door is for the mailman and guests. And that's just the way that goes. I even know, I know one person who said their sort of family tradition was basically birth, marriage, and death is when you go out in and out the front door. Everything else in your life is the back door. <laughs> it's just like, that's, I don't know. Is that a thing? Is that if there is a specific entry ritual, like if you're supposed to take off your shoes, then there's usually a space at designated for doing that. There's usually a piece of furniture designated for holding your shoes once you take them off. And there might be a specific piece of furniture designated for holding the things that you're supposed to put on then and such and things like that. Like that's that that's another case where the architecture defines the rules of, of how your house works. See, now I'm thinking about things with like, you know, where there's class systems or caste systems where like the front door is for some people and the servant door is mm -hmm. for other the people. servant's entrance. Yeah, mm -hmm. and there's things like that. Like, yeah. <laughs> especially in when you're talking about larger larger houses for, for the upper upper classes, how is that defined in terms of who gets to go into which space and which spaces are which spaces are forbidden for the people who own the house because you know you don't go down to the kitchens and talk to them there that's that's not your role you're, you're not supposed to do that sort of thing because that's supposed to be invisible to you i remember always wanting when i was little a house with like a hidden staircase like a, a servant staircase or something because yes. I'd, I'd read about them in so many novels <laughs> secret <laughs> passages wanted a secret passage or secret yeah staircase. secret passages <laughs> A house with a secret passage is super cool. I have a couple secret passages in my palace, but that's just expected because it's a dumb palace. <laughs> but like, if there are secret passages, like why were they built? Who built them and to what end? Like what's what was their mm -hmm. intended purpose and have they been forgotten about? And now they're that's why they're secret because they, because somebody has to go through the trouble of building these things and you usually don't do mm -hmm. that just for like, wouldn't it be cool if we had a had a door that opened when you moved the right book in the library because it would be cool but you then gotta get a subcontractor <laughs> and it's just a lot of it's just too much work right you gotta have to, you have to keep firing keep firing the subcontractor so nobody knows where your actual room ends <laughs> i mean i thought that's actually a trope in some fantasy novels like oh yes and then he had all the builders murdered. i feel like that 
Yeah, I feel like that's, that's like a story that somebody, I don't know if I saw that on the news or it's like, oh, here's this like guy's secret, secret murder dungeon. (laughs) (laughs) Well, on the note of secret murder dungeons and whether or not your house has one, I think we're about at time, uh, which means it is time for us to turn to our guest star world building. So Zoraida, have you come up with anything you would like to bestow I've been upon thinking, us. <laughs> yeah, I've been thinking a lot of different things. Um, some are more practical. Others are not so practical. But I've been thinking about what quarantine, what like you, what you, like, what you want with like quarantine self-care. So I think what I'm going to contribute is an enchanted wind chime that plays the exact song that you need to make you feel better. Oh, that's very. That's so nice. <laughs> that is very that's nice. like the sweetest bit of world building anyone's ever given us. That's so. <laughs> that's so lovely. I like I'm that. I'm glad. <laughs> That'd be great. Although it'd be it'd be very weird for me in the times when like what I need to hear is like '90s dance music, and all of a sudden that comes out of the wind chime. That'd be. That'd be special. <laughs> it's like yeah wind chime play the backstreet boys wind chime play some barry manilow i don't know no i love that but like it's like it's like tuned to your moods and just like mm-hmm. knows what you yeah. need to hear to feel comfortable and, and at home and safe oh i love that especially since we're talking about home yeah mm-hmm. it just makes home that much more that much more pleasant which is what you need sometimes yeah especially when you're trapped <laughs> not that we know anything about that we don't know anything about that we're fine everything's fine <laughs> it's fine. great buy books <laughs> buy lots of books exactly they're good to read at home or on the go yeah you don't need any more you don't need a bed frame anymore just make a bed frame out of books yeah Hi you! Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode goes up on September 16th, where we'll be joined by author Elsa Hunason to discuss incorporating disability into your world building. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or you just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked on the About the Show page of our website if you want to come and chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts. (music) 